Uh, this morning, um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah uh, chapter 2. And as you are making your way there, uh, let me get things set up here. All right, so yeah, as you make your way there in Nehemiah chapter 2. But before we read the word of God, uh, let me pray for us, okay? Heavenly Father God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are as we consider uh, you as omnipotent and all-knowing and all-present. Lord, who are we uh, that you would know us? Who are we that you would speak to us? Lord, who are we that you would call us by name? Lord, would we consider the stars and the sun and the moon? God, and just the vastness, Lord, of all of your creation. Lord, who are we? But yet, Lord, you know us, and you love us, and you call us by name, and you desire to be in relationship with us, to, to walk with us, to talk with us, Lord, to guide us, to lead us. And so, Lord, we thank you, God, that you've given us your word, not just as a book of stories and words, Lord, but ultimately for us to know you more. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, as we look into your word and as we uh, hear your word preached, we ask your spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, God, to see you more clearly, to hear you, Lord, and for our hearts, Lord, to love you more. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning's uh, sermon is titled Preparation. And when we prepare, uh, just as we think about preparing something, it's important to pay attention to details, right? It's important to carefully evaluate something, to inspect something. It's not just enough to have like a general idea, a general plan, uh, but it's important to, to get into the nitty gritty. Right. Um, I don't know if you're aware, that back in 2014 in London, uh, there was a commercial skyscraper tower uh, built, and the nickname of the building was called the Walkie Talkie, okay, uh, because of its resemblance to a two-way radio. Do you guys know what a Walkie Talkie is? <laughs> I just realized, like, for some of you younger, it's like, okay, right? And the shape of the building, uh, you know, kind of curved out a little bit, kind of like the headset part of the Walkie Talkie, okay? And the 38-story the building was dubiously awarded the worst new building in the United Kingdom that year, okay? And the reason why was uh, not only for kind of the design of the building, the way it looked, but it was also discovered as they were constructing the building that each day while the sun shined on the building, uh, the building would actually reflect the heat and the light of the sun onto the street, okay? It almost was like a mirror, uh, to the point where at certain parts of the day for around an hour to two hours, at certain parts of the street, the temperature would actually get to like 160 to 190 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Where in fact, one reporter put a, a frying pan with an egg there and left it there and actually was able to fry the egg, right? So you could imagine like who wants to walk near that building, right? And it was a great, I, you know, when the designer was designing the building, probably had great ideas of the design of the building, but failed to pay attention to some of the details of the building, right? He probably should have listened to the world-renowned architect Mies van der Rohe, who famously said, God is in the details, all right? Or uh, consider uh, back in 2003, so keep this in mind, this was before smartphones, okay? Uh, Nokia uh, had, come up, had come up with this design of a phone that's combined with like a game console, 
Okay, so for those of you that are a little bit older, Nintendo used to have something called the Game Boy, just like a portable uh, gaming system. And so the idea that Nokia had was to combine a phone with like a Game Boy system. They called it the Engage. Okay, so the idea was like, hey, you have this phone, and you can also play, you know, games on it, right? Revolutionary at the time, right? Uh, smartphones hadn't even come out yet. Uh, but the problem was the detail, right? So when they designed it, basically every time you wanted to switch a game, you had to take out the battery of the phone, which really, you know, was really inconvenient, right? And not a good design. And not only that, when they designed the phone, it turned out that the speaker and the microphone of the phone was on the side of the phone. So instead of holding the engage like this to talk, you'd have to hold it like this to talk. And so it was a bomb of a design. And never, I don't think it was even produced. I'm not even sure. Uh, but it's been lauded as one of the worst design kind of products out there. Uh, because of their failure to consider the details, right? A great idea, but missing and neglected some of the details, right? And when we think about, even when it comes to matters of faith, uh, when we consider and we think about matters of faith, we ought to consider the details, right? Uh, Jesus in Luke uh, chapter 14, verses 25 to 30, 30 uh, he cautions believers or, or, or folks to Consider, carefully consider, carefully inspect what it means to follow him. All right, he says in Luke 14, 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Building illustration. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone he sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. All right, and the kind of parable is like, consider the cost, consider what it means to follow Jesus, right? Not just this general idea, but get into the nitty-gritty, right? And this morning, as we look into Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 20, we're going to see uh, that previously that Nehemiah has this conviction to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we, we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20, that Nehemiah is going to inspect, and he's going to be prepare, uh, preparing uh, for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, Okay, and so, but before we look at this morning's passage, for those of you that maybe haven't been with us, I just want to summarize what's happened in Nehemiah so far. Many of you know that uh, Nick uh, is going through the book of Acts, and I'm kind of preaching through Nehemiah, so sometimes I feel like we're shifting back and forth a bit, and so you might have forgotten some of the things that we've covered. But in Nehemiah chapter 1, what we're introduced to is uh, Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, uh, Artaxerxes, it's a mouthful. And what we see is Nehemiah uh, hears about the condition of the city of Jerusalem, in particular, the people there and the walls. Uh, they are in ruin. And Nehemiah is convicted. He says, how can God's people be in this state of despair? Right? And he weeps and he mourns and he, he begins to pray about, Lord, what can I do? What can be done? And in Nehemiah 1, we see Nehemiah's prayer where he, he's convicted of who God is. He's convicted of Israel and his sin, he's convicted of God's promises and redemption, and he's convicted of God's power. And as he continues to pray, the Lord opens up an opportunity uh, where the king asks him, what's going on? He sees uh, Nehemiah kind of being disturbed and troubled. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, after four months have passed since Nehemiah first heard of the news, uh, the Lord opens up an opportunity where Nehemiah takes a step of risk, and he asks the king, will you allow me? Can I go to Jerusalem and help rebuild these walls. He takes this very prayerful risk, right? He's basically asking for a leave of absence, 
for years. And not only, not only that, he asked the king for resources uh, to help uh, provide in that. And we see that because of God's grace and sovereignty, Nehemiah is able to go. And that's kind of where we uh, dive in here this morning with Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20, which I'll now read. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But with Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and I had a few men with me. And I told no one that my God had put into my heart to do for uh, Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Verse 15. Then I went up the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant in Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This morning's sermon I've titled Preparation, and really kind of in the narrative of the book of Nehemiah, what we see here is this pivotal moment uh, of Nehemiah before they prepare, before they build a wall, the preparation that's involved in the rebuilding of the wall. And what we're going to see here are uh, kind of three main things in this passage, and I'll just highlight it now and we'll come back to it. Step by step. The first thing is we're going to see in verses 11 to 16, uh, Nehemiah does a personal inspection. A personal inspection. Secondly, we see in verses 17, 18, really the crux of this passage, a call to action together. A call to action together. And lastly, we see, as we started this chapter and also ended this chapter, uh, with a rising opposition, right? There's going to be opposition in this, right? But really, with this passage, what we're going to see in this passage is that we can faithfully and diligently do God's work and follow God because God is gracious and sovereign. Okay? And so what we see here, the first point this morning, is a personal inspection. Uh, in verses, verse 9, we see Nehemiah's journey from Susa, which is where he was, uh, which was like the, the winter palace, or you think of it as like the winter cabin of the king. And as I mentioned previously, that it's about 1,000 miles from Susa to Jerusalem. Okay, so back then, no cars, no airplanes. Okay, so it took roughly about a four-month journey okay, to travel about 900 to 1,000 miles, about 9 to 10 miles a day. You could do the math, okay? It was about four months. 
Okay. I love it how, you know, in the Bible it just says, oh, he traveled and he arrived. You know, it's kind of like when you watch a movie and they're traveling from this country to this country, right? It's just like one second, they're on a plane, next thing they're there, right? But what we see here is Nehemiah traveling to Jerusalem. And not only that, he has the favor of the king where it says he's accompanied by officers of the army and horsemen. So he's got this kind of escort uh, with him. Again, the blessing and provision of a king, all right? Uh, just on a side note, which is really interesting, we won't get into too much, but in Ezra chapter 8, verses 22 to 23, Ezra, as he goes to Jerusalem and wants to rebuild the temple, not the walls, he actually uh, was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect him because he had told the king, God will provide and protect us, so we don't need this escort. All right. And so just on a side note, it's really interesting that faithfulness and trust in God can look in different forms, isn't it? Right? That Nehemiah, fully a man who trusts in God, is fine having this kind of escort with him. Ezra says, no, don't need it. God will provide. Right? Interesting. Right? That faithfulness and obedience to God can look differently in different ways. Right? But what we see here is Nehemiah arrives finally in Jerusalem after about a four-month journey of about 900 to 1,000 miles. And notice what is the first thing he does in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem, and he was there three days. And what that's implying there is he rested. That first, Nehemiah rested. Right? You can imagine after a four-month-long journey, he's not flying an airplane first class, right? He's traveling, right, nine to ten miles a day, walking or perhaps by animal. All right, that he rested after what would have been a four months journey. All right, that before starting this work, he first rests. And it's interesting because throughout Scripture, uh, we see commands and examples of the importance of rest, don't we? Often uh, times, oftentimes, consider the most neglected commandment out of the Ten Commandments is what? Honor the Sabbath. Right, that God has created us to work which we ought to do so faithfully and diligently, but he has also called us and created us to rest. Right? It's, it's crazy when you think about this, that about a third of our lives, or maybe half of our lives, for those of you that sleep more, right, is spent sleeping. Just think about that. A third of our lives, to a fourth of our lives, or to half of our lives, is spent just sleeping. And how rest reminds us how limited we are, doesn't it? And yet how dependent we are on God. And what we see here is Nehemiah, before he does all this work, he's resting, right? He's reminded, I'm, <laughs> I'm not omnipotent, right? And so Nehemiah rests. But then what we see is after he kind of recovers from his trip, it says in verse 12, then I rose in the night, right? And what he does is he takes inventory of the condition of the walls, Right. Uh, Nehemiah heard earlier in Nehemiah chapter 1 right, about the ruin of the walls and the gates and all that, but now he's seeing it with his own eyes. Right. He had heard about it, but now he is personally seeing it. He's walking around. You could see here all these different locations uh, of the wall, uh, which we won't get into this time. We'll actually get into more detail about these different gates and walls uh, next uh, time in March uh, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 3 and the rebuilding of the wall. Right. But what we see here, he takes inventory. Right? He's examining. Right? He's going under and above. You see, he went on to this gate. 
right? There's this gate, and he's examining, taking notes. He's preparing, right, as they're going to rebuild the wall. But not only that, not only does he first rest, he takes inventory, but he does this all quietly. You notice that? Three times in verses 12, 13, and 15, it says, in the night or by the night. Why does Nehemiah do this at nighttime? All right. Why isn't he doing it during the daytime? Well, what we see here is he's doing this quietly, kind of like a, a covert mission, right? He's going to do it quietly. Right? He's trying to understand and grasp things himself before he rallies and calls people to this task, right? He doesn't want to share this conviction that he has. He doesn't want to kind of share this mission or this dream or this plan that he has until he first assesses things and takes inventory himself until he first personally inspects and prepares, right? There's some different, possible different reasons for this. We see that he's aware of some of the opposition that is arising. So he's like, okay, let me get my ducks in order before, you know, we, we go public with this, right? Uh, maybe he wanted to reconfirm things. Okay, I had this maybe plan in mind. Now let me take a look at it firsthand. Maybe we need to make some adjustments, Right, you could easily imagine Nehemiah just even praying as he's walking through these walls. Right, really see the condition of the walls and what really needed to be done. Uh, one uh, Christian leader once said, walk before you talk, investigate before you instigate. Right? Wise words. Right? Instead of just coming in to Jerusalem, I've got this plan, everybody listen to me. He's quietly assessing, preparing, praying, making sure, right, Things are what they seem to be, all right? Uh, years ago, uh, my wife and I, we were looking at buying a home, and there was one that seemed like a good fit for us, um, you know, in terms of size, uh, cost, all those things. Uh, it was definitely a fixer-upper, okay? And, you know, if you've ever gone through this process, usually there's a, a home inspection report where basically they hire a home inspector to kind of examine the house and basically tell you, you know, this is what's wrong, or these are maybe the issues, right? Or maybe there's some termite damage in the roof in this section. Uh, maybe some of the plumbing, you know, the, is a little bit older, whatever, right? And so we were looking at this home, and, uh, you know, one of uh, my wife's coworkers said, oh, you know, you should really get a second inspection done. You know, get one that you trust. I was like, oh, okay, the report's not good enough. He's like, it, it doesn't hurt to get another inspector to take a look at it. And we said, okay, sure. And so uh, he had an inspector that he really recommended. And so we hired him and, you know, came to the house and we were just watching him do all these things. He was like shoving the chimney up top, right, just to make sure, hey, how stable is this? Does this need to be fixed, right? And, you know, he got into this like hazmat suit, crawled underneath the house, like just spent hours. And we were just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, right? And uh, he came out and, he, you know, and then was, he told us some things and then he said, I'll, I'll mail you like a, a report that gives, goes into more detail, right? And basically when he made us the, the report, we were like stunned by the difference between his inspection and the first one, right? The first one was like maybe two, three pages of, oh, these are some things that need to be fixed or these are, you know, some issues. This one had like 10 to 14 pages, in fact, he had said, you know, this house, in all my years of you know, inspecting homes, uh, this house has the most termite damage I've ever seen. Right? And we're like, okay, maybe we'll hold off on this house. Right? But we were so grateful, right, that he did this. Right? He really got into the nitty-gritty and said, okay, this is the condition of the house. 
All right? And I can imagine for Nehemiah, as he's thinking about rebuilding the walls, wanting to really make sure, okay, what are we dealing with here? Right? And so he inspects it, and he's evaluating it. Right? That it's not just enough for him to hear about it, but he's getting his hands dirty, his boots on the ground. All right? And when I think about you know, kind of life, oftentimes, you know, sometimes we may have like an idea, uh, perhaps like on a high level aerial view about something, a plan, or how something maybe needs to be changed or, or could be improved, right? But oftentimes it's once we get into the details, right, that it becomes a reality and we realize, oh, wow, this is really what's involved. This is really what it entails, right? What we also see here is Nehemiah is kind of, as he's doing inventory, he's really taking a step back and assessing how things really are. And I wonder for us, even this morning, uh, before we continue, if there are things in our lives where we need to kind of get into the nitty-gritty and kind of do some self-inspection or evaluation of how things are. Perhaps uh, in our marriages, our relationship with our children, with friends, how we're doing at work. Uh, more importantly, perhaps how we're doing with God these days, dealing in areas of sin or things that have maybe perhaps unaddressed or ignored. We're just like, oh, okay, no, it's fine. But as we really get into the nitty-gritty, oh, there's some work that needs to be done. There, there's some things that aren't quite right. right. Are there any areas in your life this morning, perhaps, where you need to do some personal inspection? Right. It's important to plan, to pray, but it's also important to inspect and to evaluate. Right? Uh, this is something uh, my wife and I have done over the years where we just periodically, you know, we get into a certain season rhythm of life and we really need to kind of check in with each other and go, hey, how are we doing in our marriage? How's our communication been? How, how have things, you know, just do you feel loved and supported or, you know, and it's important to do that. So what are some areas in your life this morning where you need to do some personal inspection? And we see Nehemiah doing that here before he calls people to build a wall, right? And that leads us to the second point here. We see in verses 17 to 18, we see Nehemiah's call to action, a call to action together. Let me read verses 17 to 18. It says, Then I said, that is Nehemiah, said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. All right, Nehemiah goes from personal inspection to calling people to action together. Here in verse 17, it's the them. Who's the them referring to? It's referring to the people in verse 16. That is the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who are to do the work. These are basically the people that were there. Right? And uh, verses 17 and 18, in many ways, is kind of the, the, what I call the speech that kind of inspires and propels what's going to happen, which is the rebuilding of the walls. Um, I don't know if you like watching movies. I love watching movies, right? Uh, and oftentimes in a movie, especially if it's like a sports movie or some sort of war action movie, there's always a moment in the movie where there's the speech. You know what I'm talking about? Where, you know... The team is down, you know, by a touchdown, and the coach rallies them together and, and gives them this inspirational speech, right? And the music's playing, and then once the speech is over, you know, the, the players run out, and they're all inspired, and they win the game, right? Or, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you know, they're, they're, it's the last stand, and they're fighting these orcs and evil, and it seems like all hope is lost, right? And Aragorn gives them the speech, 
right? Uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Remember the Titans, um, which is a kind of a fictionalized historical movie, right? Uh, starring Denzel Washington as Coach Herman Boone, who basically tries to integrate uh, black and white football players, just, I believe out in Virginia, Alexandria, in the early 1970s, right? And, and trying to integrate these uh, groups of players together to actually play as a team. And the movie is really about this integration and what it means uh, to play together, right, as a team, regardless of race or ethnicity. And in the movie, they're constantly bickering and they're trying to sabotage each other, not really playing as a team. And early one morning in the movie, the coach makes them run uh, to this foggy kind of field, right? And then they're, you know, they're running hard and they finally get to the field. And then uh, it becomes a turning point in the movie where basically Denzel Washington and Coach Herman Boone gives them the speech, right? It turns out that the field that they're on is Gettysburg. Right, and he says, I'll just read the speech. I won't try to do a Denzel Washington impersonation here. But he says, this is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we are still fighting among ourselves today. This green field right here, painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen and take lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hollow ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, he's telling the players, but you will respect each other and maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. And then you know what happens in the rest of the movie, right? They bond together and they win a bunch of football games, right? The speech that kind of inspires them, right? And I like to think of this passage here in verses 17 and 18 as kind of the, the speech, that propels these people to rebuild the walls, right? Nehemiah is calling them to action. What does what what this kind of speech involve here? What, what does Nehemiah cover? What does he talk about? Well, we see here in verse 17, he says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And the first thing we see is that Nehemiah, he highlights the situation, the reality. He doesn't sugarcoat it. You notice that here? He doesn't say, oh, things aren't as bad as you guys think they are. They're much better than they are. No, he says, look at the mess we're in, right? Um, But it's interesting that even though the people of Israel could see the condition of the walls of Jerusalem, right, perhaps they had gone complacent, you know, just kind of like, oh, that's fine, you know, that it's like this, right? Perhaps they lack courage. Perhaps they lack conviction, Perhaps they lack coordination, whatever it is, but Nehemiah doesn't hold back. Right? He doesn't sugarcoat the situation or the condition of the walls of Jerusalem and God's people. Right? He says, look at the trouble that we're in. You see how it is. Look. Right? You see, to put some historical context to this, uh, the reason why the walls were in ruin, the reason why the people of God were in despair, right, was because of their sin. Right. Israel as a nation was supposed to be light to the other nations. Right. The nation and people through whom God had chosen to demonstrate his grace and power and glory. Right. They were supposed to be a light to the other nation. Right. And that other nations would be blessed by and through the nation of Israel. But instead, they were unfaithful. Right. They kept to themselves. Right. They sought their own well-being. And as a result of their sin and disobedience, right, as it says in Jeremiah 24, 9, Israel became a, quote, horror 
to all the kings of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. Right? And so the condition that they're in wasn't just by happenstance, right? But because of what had happened in the past and their sin and disobedience. And Nehemiah is calling them to that. This is where we are. This is why this has happened. Right? But what we see here is Nehemiah is hoping for the restoration of not just the physical walls, right? But really God's people. But instead, right, perhaps they've gone complacent in this. They're, oh, it's fine that the walls are ruined. It's fine that the glory of God isn't really being known to the nations, right? They weren't content, but they were complacent, right? Uh, it's interesting, you know, sometimes uh, just even practically in daily lives, we kind of get used to things not being right, and we just kind of roll with it and deal with it. You know what I mean? Um, so at our house, uh, one of our sinks stopped working, or it's leaked. One of the handles leaked. And so we basically just stopped using the sink, right? And it was kind of, it's kind of humorous. It's kind of embarrassing to say. We just kind of ignored it. We're just like, oh, that's fine. That sink doesn't work. We'll just use another sink, right? Until one day, you know, like, oh, we should probably fix the sink, huh? Right? And after we fix the sink, you know, our boys are so excited. They're like, oh, the sink works. Right? It's like we had forgotten what it was like to have a sink that works. We had gotten used to this faucet, you know, with the leaky handle, just, oh, just ignore it. Right? And that's kind of what Nehemiah is calling these people to. He's saying, don't just ignore it. Recognize what's going on. Right? So he's highlighting the situation. Right? And you can't solve a problem if you don't identify and know what the problem is, or you just kind of ignore the problem. Right? And we see this actually throughout the Old Testament, that God will send prophets right, to be a voice to the people of Israel, right? because they had gotten complacent right, in their sin or complacent uh, with certain things in their lives. And so the first thing we see here in Nehemiah's speech is he highlights the situation. The second thing we see is Nehemiah includes himself. Notice the words he uses. He says, you see the trouble, in verse 17, we are in. You notice that there? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build a wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Right? Nehemiah doesn't come in here and point his fingers at all of them and say, you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys. But what does he do? He says, we, us. Right? While Nehemiah highlights or points out the reality of the situation, right? and keep in mind, Nehemiah has never lived in Jerusalem, right? but yet he identifies and recognizes he is part of these people. Right? That he is part of the problem, but he is also part of the solution. Right? And we see that earlier in Nehemiah chapter 1 when Nehemiah prays the prayer of confession, that he prays it uh, corporately but also personally as well. That Nehemiah knows that the, this mission of rebuilding the walls is not going to be a solo endeavor, but it's got to be a collective mission. Right? Um, it's interesting, you know, having been a part of you know, many different organizations or groups, whether you know, uh, volunteering on the board of my local little league or whatever, right? or even being a part of church, you know, all of you know that it can be easy... Uh, for people to kind of point out what's wrong, right? Oh, this needs to be fixed. This could be improved, right? Or even just criticize and outright complain, right? And while Nehemiah does point out things, uh, he doesn't point the finger at 
others, but he's also including himself. You notice that here? He didn't say, you people need to fix these walls, and you people are the problem. But he says, let us. We see the, we see the, the situation here. Let's do this together. All right. uh, I remember in elementary school, one of my teachers, I don't know what the context was, but she said, oh, whenever you point at someone, do you know this? What are you doing? You're pointing, like three fingers are pointing back at yourself, right? And I, I don't know what the context was, but it always stuck with me. So I go, if you're ever pointing at someone, remember, you're also pointing at yourself. In fact, you got three fingers pointing at yourself, right? And that's kind of what Nehemiah is doing here, right? He's not just highlighting a situation and blaming them, but he is identifying with them as well. Thirdly, we see in this speech that Nehemiah gives, uh, he calls people to action. He calls people to action now. Having this conviction, having this clear mission, having this honest assessment of the condition uh, of the walls, right? He doesn't just say, all right, now that you guys are aware, okay, you know, speech is over. But he calls them to action, right? He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, right? I think sometimes, uh, you know, we can get stuck in preparation and planning and evaluating and inspecting and kind of the, the knowledge portion, right? But we might never take action. You know, we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray some more and we think and we think and we think and we think some more and we evaluate and evaluate and evaluate and evaluate and evaluate some more, but we never get to actually movement, Right? And Nehemiah is calling an already discouraged, downtrodden people, right, who have, you know, been beaten down. And what he's saying is, you know what, let's, let's get moving. Let's get moving, right? That there is a season of perhaps despair or lament or grief or mourning, right, as they understand the situation. But perhaps what's needed next is to get up and to go and to do something, right? Now, the Christian life is one of faith, and works, reflection, and action. And we see that here as Nehemiah compels them and calls them to action. But how does he call them to action? How does he call them to action? We see in the last point of his speech in verse 18, 18, he says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. You notice what Nehemiah calls him to is he points them, uh, he points the people uh, to God's work, how God is at work. He doesn't just call them to action, say, by your own sheer willpower. But he says, look at what God has doing, is doing, what God has done, and God will do. Ultimately, the fuel which, which propels Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls is not just a, a rousing speech, by Nehemiah. It's not just Nehemiah's leadership skills, okay? But it's really the hand of God, the sovereignty of God, and the grace of God. Now, for those of you that were with us last Sunday, Nick actually preached about this very theme, right? In Acts, right? How do we get unstuck, right? It's not just by sheer willpower or digging ourselves out of the hole, but we cry out to God. We ask for the Holy Spirit to empower us, right? In many, many ways, that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah is giving testimony of how God has been at work. He's telling them, this is what God has done. Do you see? I prayed, 
God answered. God has guided. God has provided. God has instructed. God is opening these doors. He's saying, God is at work here. Now let's go and do. Right? He reminds them that God is at work. He reminds them God is gracious. Right? That's what he points them to. And then we see they said, let us rise up and build. Right? They respond. Right? They respond to Nehemiah, but they ultimately respond to God. And what we could see here is we can faithfully and diligently follow and do God's work because God is gracious and God is sovereign. But, but, just because God is gracious and God is sovereign and God answers prayers, difficulties and opposition still arise, don't they? You notice here in the opening verses of this morning's passage and the closing verses, there's this rising opposition, right? Oftentimes, we may think doing the work of God, following God, you know, um, you know, God will make the path smooth, right? But if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that's actually op- oftentimes the opposite, isn't it? As oftentimes as we are seeking to follow God, there is resistance, right? There perhaps may even be persecution, right? That being in, quote unquote, God's will does not mean that there will not be any difficulties or challenges or frustrations, right? Um, one of the things I, so I used to do youth ministry a lot, and I used to, you know, a lot of the, the guys or boys or teenagers that, you know, I would spend time with, you know, played video games, right? And uh, I used this illustration. I said, you know, it's like uh, when they're playing video games, you know, they're trying to advance to the next level or whatever, right? And it's like, oh, this level is so hard, right? But you know what they do? They keep on playing, right? They don't give up, right? And I was like, well, you know, oh, don't you think maybe it's God's will that, you know, you keep on failing is, you know, he doesn't want you to play the video game, right? <laughs> right? Do you, do you ever think of it that way? They're like, no, like, I, I want to pass this level and I want to work harder. I want to, you know, I want to face this boss or whatever, right? But then I was like, why is it that in the spiritual life when you face difficulties, you're like, oh, this must be God's will. I, I shouldn't be doing this anymore because I'm facing difficulty. Kind of interesting, right? And I wonder if sometimes we think like that in our lives as well, right? That as soon as, you know, we're trying to follow God, and then something difficult comes. Oh, this must not be God's will because this is too hard, right? When in fact, oftentimes, it's the opposite, right? And we see this opposition from Sambalat and Tobiah and uh, Geshem, right? Uh, just to put some historical context here, uh, Sambalat, what we know is the governor of Samaria, which is the region north of Jerusalem, okay? And he might have even had jurisdiction over Jerusalem. And so he sees Nehemiah coming in, as kind of a political power threat, okay? And then we also see Tobiah, uh, who is a Jewish man, but who oversees uh, the region of Ammon. And then there's also Geshem, uh, who ruled a group of Arabian tribes, uh, which took control of Moab and Edom, which is uh, the area to the east, let's see, your direction, east and south, okay? But what's interesting is basically these three leaders or governors, right, basically form a semicircle around Jerusalem. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks and months is that they're going to be attacked or face difficulties from all sides, right? And what we see is that as Nehemiah and the people of God faithfully strive to follow him, that they encounter opposition, right? Uh, as Nick goes through the sermon series through the book of Acts, we're going to see that as well, that faithful obedience and living out one's faith, in, even in the early church, 
were filled with great joys and difficulties, but also uh, challenges and persecution as well. And what we see is that as they, uh, the opposition here is not physical, but what? It's verbal. You notice that here? Right? It's verbal. And here we see the power of words and the necessity and foundation of God's word for faithful living. The power of words and the necessity and foundation of God's word for faithful living. Throughout scripture, we're reminded of just how powerful words can be, right? Just think about how did God create the world? His word. How did Satan tempt Adam and Eve? Through words, right? The power of words. All right. Uh, back when I was a kid, you know, when they talked about bullying, usually it meant like kind of physical, like bullying, right? But nowadays, like that, that is a lot less these days. But more of the bullying nowadays is what, like through verbal, right? Through uh, social media, cyber bullying, right? Cancel culture, shame culture. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. For honest, words sometimes hurt more than sticks and stones, don't they? All right. When you think about some of the most painful moments uh, in some of our lives have been the result of what people have said perhaps to us or perhaps what they've said about us, right? And how painful those can be, right? And the most hurtful words are not just untrue or false, but ones which maybe even uh, question or accusations against kind of our, our character, our integrity, our heart, our motivation. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe, you know, your intent was to do good, but then they're questioning your heart. And you're like, no, 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 no. Right? And how painful those can be. And that's what we see here with Nehemiah. Right? Notice what the accusation here is against Nehemiah uh, by Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem. They said, what is this thing that you are doing? And here comes the accusation here. Are you rebelling against the king? Right? Are you rebelling against the king? If you read the story so far in Nehemiah, you know that the answer is what? No. Why is he there? It's because of the king, right? He's got this escort from the king, right? He's got resources from the king, right? In fact, from what we know of Nehemiah, he has been a faithful servant and a confidant of the king. But yet, he's being accused, what? Of the complete opposite, right? You can imagine how those words would sting and hurt. Right. Uh, years ago, many of you know, I, uh, previously I served uh, as the lead English-speaking pastor of a Chinese church. Uh, prior to that role as the lead English-speaking pastor of a Chinese church, I served as the youth pastor. Okay? Uh, and how I ended up becoming the lead English-speaking pastor of the Chinese church uh, was actually the lead English-speaking pastor of the Chinese church actually had an aneurysm. Okay? And because of that, I was kind of like the interim, and then we found out basically just Health-wise, physically, he was not able to fulfill his duties as a pastor full-time, okay? But it was interesting, during that interim time, a uh, majority of the church was very supportive of me, and I actually did not want to be in that role. I thought I was going to do youth ministry for the rest of my life, okay? But during that time, there was one individual in the church who started uh, accusing and saying that I was trying to take over this role from uh, this previous pastor, who was like my mentor, Right? And I will say, like, to this day, even when I think about it, it still hurts, right? Because that, that was never my intention. In fact, I tried, you know, we tried everything to do to support him and help his family through this whole process. 
But yet, he said, oh, you know, Joey, he's trying to take over, right? He's trying to kick this other pastor out so he can be the lead pastor. Right? And I, I mean, it was so painful, right? It was so painful because it went against, you know, it was the complete opposite of everything uh, that I was trying to do and kind of my heart intention, right? And so you can imagine how painful those words are. I'm sure we've all experienced those at certain points in time in our life, right? And we see Nehemiah being accused of something like this. But I want us, as we close, to look at how does Nehemiah respond? How does he respond? He says, then I reply to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And what we see here is, as Nehemiah is being accused falsely, right, as he's being attacked by these words and accusations, his response is he goes back to God's word, what he knows of God and what God has revealed to him. Notice Nehemiah doesn't really debate or say, liar, liar, pants on fire, right? He doesn't say, hey, look at this document from the king that I've, you know, been given, right? He appeals to God's sovereignty and grace in all this. He says, God of heaven will make us prosper. Like, God is in control here, right? There's nothing you can do or say. God knows and he is in control, right? That God's word is an anchor and foundation for Nehemiah as he's confronted with these false accusations, as this opposition starts to rise up. Nehemiah knows the truth, right? He knows the truth, and he knows that God knows, and God sees, right? As one commentator likes to describe it, Nehemiah pulls out the ace of spades here. He's like, sure, you have the queen of hearts. I've got the ace of spades, right? And what we see here is that Nehemiah, as he's preparing the people to build the walls of Jerusalem, Right? He does personal inspection. He calls them together in action, even in the face of opposition. And we're reminded here this morning that we can faithfully and diligently do and follow God's work uh, because he is gracious and sovereign as we keep his word in mind. And you know, as we close, I think about you know, how does this all connect to Christ? Right? How do we see Jesus in all this? I see Jesus' life and ministry constantly criticized and attacked, wasn't he? His motives questioned, his integrity and identity questioned by the Pharisees, Sadducees, Roman government, to the point where even everyone turned away his closest disciples as he headed to the cross. But Jesus didn't retaliate because he knew the truth, that he was the truth and the way and the life. And that Jesus came in this world to show, much like Nehemiah did to the people of Jerusalem, uh, to awaken them up to the reality of the conditions around them. Right? As Nehemiah called them and said, open up your eyes and see what's going on. See the condition that you're in. Jesus comes into this world to point to us the broken condition that we are living in. Our lives, our sin. And he calls us to get up and get going and to follow him. Because he is gracious and he is sovereign. In what ways this morning do you need to be reminded of these truths this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God. I thank you for the life of Nehemiah. Thank you for the life of Christ. I thank you that your word is so rich and deep, Lord. There's so much more that we could get into, Lord. But I pray, Father, that as we have listened, as we have read your word, that your word would be that anchor and foundation for us. 
that it would be a mirror, uh, Lord, that allows us to see ourselves as we really are. Let it also be a mirror that reflects who you are, God, to us in your grace and in your sovereignty. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, that you'd help us not just to be hearers of your word, Lord, but help us uh, to apply your word, God, to be doers of your word, that your word would take root in our hearts, Lord, and to go and bear fruit uh, for our continued good and growth and for your glory. God, we thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.